We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have on the podcast today, Justin Bathin. He is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership Studies at the University of Kentucky, and he serves as a co-director of the Center for Next Generation Leadership. He is a current director of the UK Next University of Kentucky, not United Kingdom. I thought that first, but <laughs> Next Generation Scholars Dual Credit Program, a unique networking approach to accelerating deeper learning in Kentucky. He's also a co-developer of STEAM Academy High in Lexington, Kentucky, and he works directly with schools and school leaders to reform the systems that support the learner experience in the schools. And as you know, I'm a big fan of talking about the learner experience. So welcome to the podcast, Justin. So excited to have you. Awesome. Thank you, Jethro. Totally appreciate it. It has been an awesome journey, and I am. One thing that I want to talk about is something that I have seen a real need for across the country and different states and different districts and different universities are doing this at different levels. 
But in creating dual credit systems and incorporating having Steam High be something that feeds into them, let's talk about first and start with Steam High, and then we can move into the dual credit. Okay, sure. Give you the little bit of the background that developed uh, Steam Academy High School uh, in Lexington, which is now in year number eight of our existence. Uh, sort of the idea starts in 2012 and we get it up and running in 2013. And so se- year seven or eight, we're sort of in there. That Steam Academy launched as a byproduct of the next generation of Leadership Academy, which we ran at the University of Kentucky for school districts across Kentucky to sort of begin to play with innovative ideas. And the superintendent of Lexington was there and we launched a high school, collaborative high school as a result. Our very original mission was to smooth the transition to college because of that partnership. That is a hard thing to do, um, especially when there's not a lot of structures. And Kentucky did not have, and still in some ways does not have, a lot of dual credit structures in place. And so uh, we sort of had to learn on both sides, both in the P-12 system and on the higher ed system, how to have that relationship. I was a sort of a co-developer is the word that I use because there was a team of four of us that really sort of crafted the ideas of what that high school was to become. And then of course, there's all the teachers that were part of that, the community partners. There was a lot of people thinking about what that high school should be, but in terms of like, how do we execute the ideas on a day-to-day basis? There were sort of four of us. And, and we really struggled through how to have those higher ed partnerships. At one point, we maintained four separate dual credit relationships. And that was not easy to maintain. We didn't like how that was playing out in, current, in terms of a kid's transcript, where kids were having to request all these different little transcripts in order to make that transition to college formally. So we paired back our relationships to just the community college. The local community college in Lexington is called Bluegrass Community and Technical College. And then we built a new relationship with the community college where a lot of what we did was to put kids on their campus and bring some of their teachers to our campus. Uh, What we have always shied away from a little bit is the traditional dual credit structure, which has a college course being taught by a dual credit certified high school teacher. It's not that mechanism is, is necessarily a problem, but we wanted to get a little bit more of a robust college experience around that. That involved us transporting some kids. We eventually built an early college on the campus of a community college that we've just launched a brand new state-of-the-art building. And so we're sort of bringing it all back under one roof right now. But in building that early college model, we really learned a lot. But getting to design a high school from scratch is awesome. And I know that not very many people get that opportunity, but you can get a lot of things right from the beginning when you get to do it from scratch. So we launched on a semester-based model. We launched with the Canvas learning management system. So we got that right out of the gate. We also were very intentional about moving kids a little bit more quickly through the coursework on a semester-based model to let them have college opportunities in their junior and senior year. We also built an internship program because as kids accumulate credits, they might graduate early, which we didn't really necessarily want early graduation. And so we wanted to make sure there was robust things for them to do, even if they weren't in a high school class all day long, which we didn't really want for our juniors and seniors. So we have a robust internship program. A lot of those internships happen on the University of Kentucky's campus where kids are learning from staff in various parts of the university. So all of those different pieces together, the learning over about six years 
of developing the high school side from scratch, we then incorporated back into the University of Kentucky in building our statewide approach to dual credit. And so STEAM Academy has been an absolutely critical learning tool for the University of Kentucky to learn how is it that we wanna do dual credit and, and how do we wanna be different than the traditional dual credit out there. And so that wound up being critical to how we built a dual credit program. Yeah, so there's there's so much to take away from that. And I, I wanna get to some of the other things that you got right. But first, let's go back and talk about some of the uh, different iterations and challenges that you faced and how you adjusted that and, and made changes along the way. Cause I think that piece is really, really valuable in figuring out like that it's okay to not have everything perfect right out of the gate, I think is important. So let's talk about some of the lessons learned. You know, originally you had a bunch of partnerships with different colleges and then you went down to just the community college to make it easier for the students. And I think that that is, is really wise, but going back to the original problem, which was how to make that transition to higher education better. um, What are some of the things that you learned through that process and how that evolved over time and into what that looks like now? Oh yeah. It's a, it is a, a design process as you talk about in the book, like it, very much, especially in those early years, was leader as designer. And so in the design process, you have to be comfortable with iteration and prototyping. As you say, we would prototype an idea. We learned a lot about how many different times we try an idea. So our rule of thumb became we would try an idea three times. If we were not completely satisfied by the third time, we would abandon the idea. Um, And we sort of had markers along the way for like, how does it need to feel at the end of the first time, at the second time? Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of an idea that you tried that didn't work or what an idea, what qualified it to be an idea that you would try three times and then give up on or abandon? Yeah, that's a really good question. A lot of those ideas came a little bit from me as the ivory tower guy. I have to apologize, right? Like, there's these things that live in theory that, you know, in theory, it would be awesome if sometimes I would push an idea into the sort of designer space because I was not the only designer. There was a team of four of us that were really the sort of core everyday working at it designers. And sometimes I'd push an idea and it wasn't always me. Like I'm not the person responsible for the super robust internship model that we have that came from one of our sort of teachers who pushed that. And then the principal, uh, the school director really pushed that hard to expand it to all kids. So I think that the ideas were coming from all directions early. Like one of the things that you face as you have this mission to build a brand new from scratch high school that's meant to be different is everybody has an opinion about what this school should be. And we were named STEAM Academy. And so those letters, as your listeners know, bring with them a lot of baggage. And so what STEAM means has a lot of different interpretations. So all of that was coming at us. So we had to build ways to filter down. And that's what that team of sort of four designers sort of did eventually was like we became a little bit of a gatekeeper for ideas because there was just so much coming at us in the early years. You are a lover of design thinking. And one of the ideas coming at us was just build the entire school out of design thinking. And that may well be an awesome idea, but we had no idea how to do that. And it just wound up leading a lot more confusion into the space. So that turned out to be an idea that we had to abandon um, because you can't constantly be 
every single human in the building can't constantly be in design mode. You know, we do need to have a schedule and there, there's things like that. It was just days and days and whiteboards, just continuous whiteboarding to think about what's working, what's not working, trying to gather data from kids and teachers, what's working. The first iteration there had to be something about an idea that felt right to us. There had to be a feeling that we got that this is still the right thing, even if it didn't work better than the norm. The second time we tried an idea, it needed to be as good as the norm, right? So at this point, the second time we try something, it can't still be worse than what we were doing before. And then by the third time, it needed to be distinctly better. So like clearly better and not just better in our judgment as the leadership team, but better in the judgment of kids and teachers and community members. That became our sort of go-to criteria for how we were judging which ideas we want to stick with. Yeah, that, uh, Justin, that is so simple, but so powerful. And when I talk with leaders about doing design thinking, they think, well, I've got to like make an initiative about that idea or whatever it comes up. And what I love about the design thinking process and what you're talking about is that if it just feels like it could be great, it's good enough that you can pursue it. And you have to be okay with abandoning it when it turns out to not be better. I love how you have these three different levels of, it just needs to feel good to start it. And so we just do it and it could totally stink and that's fine. And then the second time, it can't be any worse than what we were doing before. And so if it is worse, then we should abandon it at that point. But if it's about as good, then we should probably keep refining it because you don't get your first idea out of the gate. The first thing you do doesn't always work. And then especially at that third thing, it's got to be distinctly better. Once you can say this is definitely better, then why wouldn't you make that choice? Why wouldn't you stick with that? But to make that decision the very first time you encounter something new is really unwise. But to make that distinction the third time, after you've tried a couple of times and you have an idea of how it's working, then, then that's a great time to say, this is clearly distinctly better or it's not and let's abandon it. I think that... You talked about that, Justin, like it was no big deal. That's just how we did it. But that is so key to to designing things well in a school. Thank you for sharing that. It just became part of the culture. You get thrown into the deep end when you get a, a challenge like that. And so you have to learn little tricks of the trade like that pretty mm-hmm. quickly to sort of work your way back out of the deep end. And for everyone listening from Kentucky who can speak to eight years ago, that first year of STEAM Academy was a bit of a disaster, like unequivocal. Like I, nobody is here saying we launched out of the gates and really strongly. But once we learned that we're okay with failure, we're willing to try ideas, and there was a realization that what we were doing, even though it was so messy, ultimately the kids were telling us, I'm still happier here than I would have been in my home high school. And, and so that was the route that what we're doing, even though to us as adults, this looks chaotic, the kids didn't mind the chaos because it was equal to what they felt like they would have expected to have in the traditional school. And at that point, I think we started building some confidence and we started refining and then we started getting better than the experience they would have had at their home high school. That's really fascinating too, because kids can really adapt well to the changes and different things that we're doing. And it's really the adults that have a hard time changing, like in a traditional school, moving to some more innovative models, the kids, they can be fine. So one of the things we love to say at the middle school, our principal, there are only two grades and we had a large military population. So every year 
we got 60% new students. So they had no idea what happened before. And so one of the things I drilled into the counselors and the teachers was never say it used to be like this. And now it's like this. Always just say it's like this because the kids are not going to have any idea about anything that we've changed because they've never experienced it before. Now their siblings may say, Oh, that's not how we did it when I was there. And that's a different idea, but recognizing that the kids can manage that just fine. So let's talk about some of the things that you did get right, right away. Like you talked about LMS in the semester. What are some of the other things that you got right, right away when you started that school? We had a bias toward equity that is probably the number one thing we've ever done correctly. And that bias toward equity has served us well every single step of the way. Uh, And so I cannot implore upon school leaders enough to really hone and develop your bias towards equity. Um, You find yourself on the right ethical side of those kinds of questions, and you are always in defensible positions. And those defensible positions were good at moments when we were questioned. For instance, this super clear moment in my head when we as a school had made what we considered to be the equity choice to not engage in online learning, virtual, pure online learning as credit recovery. We didn't think that was the right call for kids. Then we got questioned on that really deeply because it's sort of a core equity practice of many districts to do virtual credit recovery. But we really didn't think that was the right call for kids. Our approach of building a semester model that allowed multiple iteration, we had a bit of a mastery approach where a kid had to get a B the first time to pass a class. We felt like that was a better approach. And uh, because we felt like we were standing on equity grounds because of that approach, ultimately we wound up sort of winning that debate with the local district And I felt like we actually wound up sort of teaching the district a little bit more about how we can build more opportunities into the learning models for more chances to pass a class without having to just default to credit recovery. Now, COVID year 2020 has turned everything virtual. So (laughs) that was a moment in time. But that bias toward equity, we got right out of the gates. Tell me a little bit more about what bias toward equity means for you and and how that was implemented, like not only having online, but how else do you mean that? Let me give credit right out of the gate to Tina Stevenson, who is a co-developer. This was a project that we did together. And the other two names I want to throw in here is Chris Flores, who was the assistant principal, and Eric Ridd, who was the guidance counselor. That was our sort of core leadership design team. Tina is African-American woman, grew up in the working class part of Lexington. Our school was located in the working class part of Lexington. Tina taught us how to have a bias toward equity. And so I feel like I've fully developed those skills and it's now part of my own DNA, but it wasn't at the beginning. Tina would constantly push us to ask the question, can we do this model for all kids? So we would come up with an idea and that we would test that idea. And and maybe we knew that that idea would work for the 60% of the building who's probably college going. Nowadays, of course, 90% of the kids go to college. But at that moment, we thought, okay, this will work for those kids. But, you know, these other students might wind up having to take a course multiple times, and they'll never reach dual credit. And so if if the idea ended in that outcome, which is this is only going to work for some kids, we'd have to abandon the idea. 
And so uh, that bias towards equity was really critical to us finding the learning models that really just build opportunity after opportunity after opportunity into the school system so that kids can eventually find their way. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations. If I approach my research with the intention of helping a group of people, but I'm using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their, their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over my research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time, um, and across space in the United States. Um, basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers, and we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard? are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at cybertraps.com slash seven. Our first semester for many kids at STEAM, there is quite a bit of students needing to stay with the material, which is sort of the buzzword for they fail the first semester. Because we've built so much more opportunity in though, there's many more iterations where they can pass a class. We've also built a lot of internship opportunity in. We're trying to buy them time, honestly. We're trying to buy time. And because some kids really do need more time, 
they've never been in a school like STEAM. They've never been challenged with adult expectations like STEAM. And so they need time. And we are trying to build that for them. And, and most of those kids at some point, they, they absolutely find their way and end up taking full advantage of our internship program, taking full advantage of our dual credit program. And most kids are leaving STEAM college bound. But that is only because we were always, always, always building for equity. What I really appreciate there is that you're not saying that equity is that everybody gets the exact same thing because those kids that need more time with the material, they got more time with the material, right? And often in education, especially, we say that equity means that everybody gets the same thing. That is certainly not the case here in this situation where you're saying, you know, does this model work for all kids? That makes it sound like it's about equality, but you're really saying, does this lead to success for all kids? And that is more about equity because some kids are going to need more time. So in my last district, what we did for summer school is we found all the kids, uh, and this was the 1920 school year. So uh, the second half of the year, pretty much everybody passed because they weren't failing anybody. But the first half of the year, a bunch of people failed. And what we saw was that in our district, about one fourth of all of our high school students had failed at least one class. And so that was, that's a pretty high number of kids to be failing. And so we went through and looked at the data and we changed how we did credit recovery over the summer uh, during the pandemic. And we said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take all the kids who score between 50 and 60%. And we're going to invite them specifically to come to summer school with us. Anybody who got below a 50% there, we're going to leave that up to traditional credit recovery. But for these kids, we want to give them the best chance to buy them time. Like you were saying, I love that phrase. So we invite these kids to come to summer school. And the purpose of summer school was not for them to uh, get an A out of that class because they already had an F. The idea of summer school was that they could at least get a D so that it wouldn't be on their transcript as an F and they would be able to not have to retake the whole class. Now, if they wanted to get a better grade and they thought that was important, then they certainly could. But for those kids that were in the 50 to 60 range, we just needed them to to get some credit so they wouldn't have to retake the whole thing. It was an awesome, awesome uh, opportunity and really changed how our district thought about credit recovery. And these kinds of things that you're talking about are, are super important. So you said bias toward equity was one thing you got right. What was another thing that you got right? Authentic relationships with our community. Um, which is super important to PBL. So we fancied ourselves a PBL school. You don't just declare that, you have to learn that. And so there was years of learning that went into that. Um, But as part of that, we always tried to be intentional to our very specific neighborhood of Lexington. And that also served us well. Like we, we gained trust in our community and that, it was just, it was a strong suit of Lexington that we became a place of common ground for the city and that kids really were accessing the whole of what Lexington felt like rather than sort of one part of what Lexington felt like. So I think that was probably something we got right out of the gates. There's things that took iteration. I'm getting Canvas right early was important. Uh, The current dean of the Seidel School of Education at Salisbury University, a woman named Lori Henry sort of pushed us there. And the fact that we went was a good decision. And and we got that right. Obviously, in the pandemic, STEAM transitioned 
to online learning seamlessly ish, obviously, but uh, having Canvas in our back pocket was critical. And, and I think we were the first school in Kentucky to be first high school in Kentucky to be sort of 100% LMS, every single course, including PE was on running on Canvas, everything. Sort of that single user experience for kids was really good. All of their grades were in one place. Simple. We, we were a Google school right out of the gate. That was smart. Uh, I don't know. So there's a variety of sort of things like that that we probably got right early. Yes. And then there's a variety of things we had to learn. I'll give you, we tried to be standards-based grading right out of the gate. Complete fail. Complete fail. Fell on our face. <laughs> we had to completely retreat as parents were like, what is happening? Why aren't my kids getting a grade? You know, we were trying to change so many other things that, you know, eventually parents just drew a line and said, stop it with the grading. Let's have somewhat traditional grading going on. So there's an example of something we did not get right, right out of the gates. Yeah. And and that's a really interesting one, too, because standards-based grading takes so much work to get it right that it can't be just the school saying this is what we're going to do. It's got to be a community based thing where everybody's understanding what that actually means and how to do it together. It's not surprising that didn't go well because I've been in districts where we've transitioned and where we've already been. And in one district, we had been standards-based for many years and a new school board got elected and they're like, nobody likes standard-based grading. We want regular grades just like we had when we were kids. (laughs) And it was working out really well, but people just, they couldn't understand it. And it was, it's a, it's an interesting thing. One of the things that I appreciate what you're talking about is this idea of getting Canvas right from the beginning. And when you have a bias toward equity and you are designing in a way that it's going to be successful for all kids, having an LMS, whether it's Canvas or something else or some way to make everything accessible for everyone is is vital to that. And you talked about that like it was a known entity already, but exactly what you're saying about transitioning during that is a really powerful thing. And when I was a teacher in my second year of teaching, one of the things that I hated the most, Justin, was having kids come and ask me, what did we do yesterday? Because I was absent. And it just drove me bonkers. (laughs) I could not stand it. So I used this software called PlanBook to put my lesson plan on a website. And I made a website and had the link. And I, whenever a kid said they were absent, I would say, go to jethrojones.com slash FHMS and look at what we did. Click on yesterday's date and you'll be able to find everything. And so even before I had an LMS, I was dis- designing my classroom in a way that the LMS principles were there, that there was one place to go. You got everything you needed and you could do that essentially all on your own. Sure, it was better if you were in person with me, but that was one of those things where I was like, this is crazy that we don't have this already. And it was really a a powerful thing for my kids to be able to do that. And that's something that I've taken with me to every school that I've been a principal at, because it's not like I was saying this is for, you know, the most downtrodden and, and the kids who are in the worst position. It was just something that I saw made sense And oftentimes, you know, we do those things that make sense to us and hopefully we're doing them and they're going to be good for, for kids also. (laughs) But sometimes we do them because they make sense. And in standards-based grading, for example, not only did it not make sense, but it was 
an epic failure like you were talking about. I want to transition just a little bit and talk about the work you're doing now with higher education and partnering with K-12 districts and how that looks. I mean, it's a challenging thing to do, but I think it's important because our goals are different and we don't always want the same things for our students and the expectations are different. So how do you do that effectively? And what advice would you have for principals to work well with a university system to make that collaboration happen? Hmm. Okay. Let me answer the second one first around principals and what you can do with higher ed. I think one thing principals need to understand is how flexible higher ed can be. Um, it doesn't feel that way. When you, I think when, when P12 folks look up at higher ed, they feel like it's this monolithic ivory tower. I don't know how to deal with that thing. Higher ed is also in a period of transition right now. And they are also trying to figure out how to best serve their communities, how to best enroll students, how to smooth transitions. And so they're curious about a lot of the same questions. You're absolutely right that the mentality about how they approach those questions is very different. And so a lot of the stuff that I do is just like reconciling narratives because the narrative coming from higher ed and the narrative coming from P12 might feel different, but at the end of the day, we sort of want a similar thing. If you're a principal thinking about, I wanna start an early college or uh, I really would like to expand my dual credit program, bring them a model, bring them a concept. What you see in higher ed a lot of time, and don't just bring it to the dual credit administrator, no offense, there are amazing people who help make this interaction work, but most colleges are not investing in dual credit administrators like myself, who's really playing in both worlds. Um, They are just managing the bureaucracy. You need to bring it to somebody at the provost level or above. And the worst they could say is no, they probably, they may well, but I think you'll wind up planting a seed. And then two years later, that seed will bloom into something that you didn't think about. So don't be shy about managing up into the higher ed system. All right. That's sort of point number one. What am I doing? It's fun to talk about. We can't do it all here in this podcast, but so essentially having learned what I've learned living in between the two worlds, ultimately I sort of came to this idea called, which I I did absolutely call Project Moonshot. Um, I built it out on a whiteboard and labeled it. I drew a little moon anyway, because honestly, I didn't know if it was possible. Like it's pushing the boundaries further than I didn't. I, I felt like Kentucky was ready to go. And I'm deeply rooted in Kentucky and very invested in sort of a single state is my approach versus trying to be some kind of national player. I didn't know if our state was ready, but wound up that the moment, sometimes you just happen to hit the moment exactly right. And I feel that's what we did with Project Moonshot. What it is, is it's a new approach to dual credit where we really focus on collaborative teaching. So the dual credit class happens, there's a university instructor assigned from our side, from the university side, working with like five high school teachers simultaneously distributed via Zoom out into schools across Kentucky. So really we're we're wrapping two adults around these dual credit kids, the university adult and the high school adult, um, and then giving them the normal university class. Like we're taking nothing, the University of Kentucky is the top institution flagship for Kentucky. We are not changing the courses whatsoever early results indicate that our kids are doing very well in the dual credit program using this approach where they still have a bit of high school. We're trying to take the best of high school and the best of university and sort of merge them together into one experience for kids. But that's not it. 
So that's even that would be a pretty aggressive, interesting approach to dual credit alone. But at the same time, we're trying to build a network for the advancement of deeper learning in high school reform. And so only high schools that are willing to participate in our network get access to our approach to dual credit. And so you have to sign on for both. It is a both approach, both a network and a dual credit model. So the network side then takes all of our learning from our Center for Next Generation Leadership, trying to lead change and deeper learning reforms, just progressive constructivist education, right? Like there's so many words these days, but you can sort of picture those schools. So we're trying to lead that work over the last decade into Kentucky. So this is a way that we can sort of distill that work and really focus on high schools because high schools are the hardest to change. I mean, good job, middles and elementaries and huge fans, but high schools are very locked into the high school model. Like they are committed. And so to really get them to move off of it, you've got to incentivize that in a new way. And so we're willing to put up to 10 UK courses per kid into your high school But in exchange, we need a real commitment to working with us as a network to get better high schools where we can have, instead of our current college going rate in Kentucky in the 50, 60th percentile range, and we'd like to move that in our network high schools up to the 80, 90 percentile range, including community college and trade school. Like we don't want to, those are all very valuable spaces. But what we really want for kids is to take the next step. So we want to make the next step happen sooner. We want to smooth the transition to the next step, all of which we hope then can get that much higher percentage of kids taking that next step and building a life resume that includes something beyond the high school diploma. And I I love that approach. I think that is fantastic. We probably need to do a second episode for this next question I'm going to ask, but I just want your brief thoughts on it. But what about the push that seems to be going on culturally in America right now with kids bypassing college because it's not seen as important as it once was and not necessary. And companies like Google are saying, we don't need college degrees anymore. We will still uh, take people based on their skills. But let's let's stab that real quick. Yeah, so this is absolutely an approach and intentionality that runs counter to that broad narrative that college doesn't matter or matters less or whatever. The economic data could not be more clear. Like there's very few things that economists seem to completely agree upon, but the value of college is one of those things that economists completely agree upon that your future earning potential is deeply tied to what did you achieve after high school? And that's just the economic reality that we look at. I also sort of look at this very weird and crazy future that we live in where, yeah, like that company that you've been working for that's super innovative and was just kicking butt, the pandemic hit and it's closed. What went bankrupt? Now, now what are we doing next? Because, you know, we've got a cool LinkedIn page and we've got some skills, but like, how is this translating into that next career choice? So I really push back hard, but I also want to very broadly define college. And, and we so lose sight of that. Everybody thinks about like the Harvard four-year degree, the liberal arts education as the one definition of what college is. That's, that's a single definition. And the actual definition of college is much broader. And so we need to be defining college as a step after high school. 
and not solely as the four-year liberal arts degree. I love the four-year liberal arts degree. I often see the people arguing against every kid having access to a four-year liberal arts degree are people with four-year liberal arts degrees. So I find that to be really problematic. I'm definitely a person who does believe deeply in the value of college. I'm sort of came from a low-income family myself, first-generation college kid. You know, it's in my DNA, dual credits in my DNA. My wife got access to very early days of dual credit and I did not. And so she started university. We graduated high school at the same time. She started university a year and a half ahead of me. And so I'm like, what is happening? And she was getting a master's degree and I'm still trying to finish up a bachelor's. And we, the exact same age. And so uh, that was early, deeply ingrained in me. I think the compromise position that I'm very comfortable to live at, which is, I agree that the amount of money and the amount of time that many kids dedicate to college is excessive. Let's accelerate, let's reduce the cost of college and let's get all kids pointed to that next step and even started on that next step while they're still in high school. And if they want to stop at an associate's, great. A dental hygiene is a great technical thing to get. You don't even have to get the associate's degree. Just get your license to be a dental hygienist. That's an actual long-term career that you can have access to. If we get one full year of college done for you while you're in high school, then that means within nine months after graduating high school, you probably can be a dental hygienist and now you're, you're set for a while. Those are the kinds of things that we're trying to make sense of and get kids pointed to, but I very much am I'm very uncomfortable with the college is not right for all kids narrative. Very, very uncomfortable with that because it's probably right for the person who's saying it, their son or daughter. And so which kids are you talking about when you say college is not right for all kids? Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I, I think the thing that is important in all those things you said about that is that we should broadly define college as a step after high school and not just focus on it's a four-year degree. And I think that what we need to be emphasizing is that you don't stop learning when you graduate high school and that you continue doing that. And there are many different ways to do it. And a four-year liberal arts degree is one of many and not the sole thing. So I appreciate you saying that. I think that that piece is is really important. So in closing, we've talked about a ton of stuff here and your answer to this question can be based on what we talked about or something completely different. But what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal? Hmm. Okay, great question. What week are we in? We're shutting schools down all across the country. If, if someone happens to be listening to it, sort of we're still in pandemic mode. You know, I think that there is, there's a recognition of the opportunity of the moment that I would want school leaders to understand and that it's outside of their comfort zone, but that's why there's the opportunity that you are not completely sure what school means right now is what's so valuable and that you should run toward that question, not run away from that question. And I think if that's a mindset that school leaders could ad- adopt in this moment, being very comfortable with the uncertainty, they're going to wind up serving kids better, not just over the long run, but probably in the moment as well. So I think that's probably the one piece of advice. Although here in 2020, I mean, it changes weekly. 
That is absolutely the case. Justin, thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principle today. There's a lot of stuff, show notes and everything on here that you can check out. Oh yeah, links to Steam High and all that. And you can follow uh, Justin on Twitter at Justin Bathen. Again, Justin, thanks so much for being part of Transformative Principle. Totally appreciate it, Jethro. It's great. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principal. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.